Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the songs that we were able to sing today. And I think that as we think of the, uh, the topic that we want to address and the topic that we want to look into this morning, how appropriate it is for us to be able to start with these songs that already have given us these promises that uh, when we think of sin, that there is already a way out. And so we begin this conversation today uh, already knowing what you have done for us. And I just pray now as we unpack this uh, that you would... Um, cause us to consider uh, how we respond. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think all of you would agree that um, you don't have to look very long or hard into the world uh, to see the direct impact or the effect that sin is having. For example, you have wars, famine, injustice, slavery, human trafficking, poverty, Domestic violence, rape, theft, dishonesty, disobedience, and we could go on and on and on and on. Sin is the thing that impacts all of us or the thing that all of us struggle with, but the truth is most of us would prefer to not talk about it. Uh, And so today what we want to do is we want to look at what do we as a church, what do we as a conference believe about sin. It's, a pretty, com- it's pretty common for us when we, when we think about sin to focus on the big things. You know, the stuff that you see in the news, the, the things that make you cringe. But sin doesn't need to be this big, big thing in order for it to have a big impact on our lives. There's a man who was walking from New York City to San Francisco, and when he, when he got there, they asked him what the biggest hurdles were. And he said that the toughest part of the trip wasn't traversing the steep slopes or you know, walking through the, the hot, barren stretches of the desert. He said, the thing that came the closest to defeating me was the sand in my shoes. And I think that's the way it sometimes is with sin. I think some of us here would have this mindset that, the thing that's going to cause us to separate from God is going to be some big, big thing, some big disobedience, and then you're going to end up walking away from God. But I think the reality and the truth is for most of us here, it's those little things that go unchecked, that carry on and carry on and carry on, and all of a sudden, because there are these little subtle things that are in our lives, without knowing it, we begin to drift further and further and further away from God. Adam and Eve are the perfect example of this, if you think about it. What was the sin that they committed? Think about it for a moment. They took a bite of fruit. That's it. I think if I was to say to you today, oh man, you know, I did this really, really horrible thing, and I don't know, please forgive me, and you would ask me, what did you do? I took a bite of fruit. You would all look at me and say, oh, come on, really? You're worried about that? And I think that what we need to understand is that it wasn't so much what Adam and Eve did that caused the separation and for sin to come into the world. It was the fact that they were disobedient. 
And I want us to start with that in mind today, that we don't have a scale of how big or how small a sin needs to be. Sin is separation from God. Sin is disobedience. And we're going to unpack um, what sin all is today. But we need to start with this awareness that sin is anything that separates us from God, anything that's a disobedience. And, and we want to be careful that we do not say, oh, well, this sin is big and this sin is not. And I hope that all of us then will at the same time allow ourselves this morning to examine our own lives and to really truly wrestle with where do we stand in response to this conversation that we want to have here this morning. So let me um, read to us our confession of faith, the EMMC confession of faith. It says this, We believe that sin is a rejection of God's rule, beginning with the rebellion of Satan, followed by Adam and Eve's deliberate choice to disobey God. Because of sin, everyone has fallen short of God's will, creating a conflict with God's self and others. The penalty for sin is physical and spiritual death. The dignity of all persons contrasts starkly with the depth of human sin. The sin of Adam and Eve constitutes a rebellion against the rule of God. With one subversive act, all humanity plunged into the grip of sin. Sinful thoughts, feelings, and actions that fail to follow God's direction. Sin twists human relationships, leaving us with broken communities. Sin is a powerful influence that tempts us to make choices contrary to God's will. So let's start with this question. Where did sin begin? Where did sin begin? We may say this morning, well, sin began when Adam and Eve committed a sin. And I would say, no, I don't think that's true. Because how, if sin was not something that was already there, then how were they able to sin? If there was no such thing as sin, how were they able to sin? So where did sin begin? Sin began with the rebellion of Satan. The sin that corrupted Satan was a self-generated pride. You need to understand what Satan did, what Lucifer did, is he at one time saw himself as equal to God, saw himself maybe even as superior to God. And when that self-generated pride, when he convinced himself that he was God and that he was greater than God, that self-generated pride is what caused uh, Satan to fall. Apparently, this represents the actual beginning of sin in the universe, preceding the fall of Adam. And we don't know when this happened and what time frame or anything like that, but we know that sin began with Satan. Sin originated in the free will of of Lucifer, in which with full understanding of the issues involved, he chose to rebel against his creator. And we're not going to take time to unpack that because we could spend a lot of time on that. But if you're interested in reading more about that, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 give us a full description of the fall of Satan. And what happened next was Satan then influenced Adam and Eve, who by choosing to be disobedient to God brought sin into the world or brought sin to mankind. And this is outlined for us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says this, Paul speaking, he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. 
and seeking to be wise. Remember, this was the whole lie that that uh, Satan told Adam and Eve that you will be like God and that's why God doesn't want you to eat from that fruit because you will be like God. And so in seeking to be wise, like God, Adam and Eve became foolish. In the desire for freedom from God's law, humans became enslaved. In seeking to rise higher as a reflection of God's glory, we fell away. Our image and our likeness of God that was blemished through selfishness. All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. So what I want to do this morning is I want to talk to us about the biblical perspective of the nature of sin. You all got that? That's your heading for your notes now. The biblical perspective of the nature of sin. Many people today are ignorant or they are uncomfortable talking about sin. And when they talk about sin, they usually prefer to talk about sins. Let me explain what I mean by that. What we want to do this morning is we want to talk about the whole topic of sin. We're not going to focus in on certain sins. And when Christians do talk about sin, what they often prefer to do is to talk about certain sins, maybe especially the one that I'm not guilty of, the one that I don't struggle with. And so let's talk about these sins. And what we want to do this morning is not talk about certain sins, but we want to talk about sin. Because it's not just certain sins that cause the problem. The issue for humanity is sin. And so what is the biblical perspective of the nature of sin? Number one, sin is an inward inclination. Sin is an inward inclination. And I just need to say before we go any further, I will be leaning fairly heavily on the writings of Millard Erickson's book, Introducing, Introducing Christian Doctrine. So just so you understand, if I sound like I'm using big words, probably his words, not mine, because I'm just not that smart. But uh, number one is sin is an inward inclination. Sin is not merely wrong acts, but sinfulness as well. It is an inherent inner disposition inclining us to do wrong acts. So you may be in a situation where you are tempted to do something and you want to do something, but you don't do it. That doesn't mean that sin isn't there. It's the inclination, the desire to do what you should not do. That is part of what sin is. Yes, maybe you're not guilty of committing a certain sin, but the temptation and the desire to sin was there. And that's what we mean with a, the nature of sin. Here, motives are virtually as important as actions. Jesus condemned anger and lust as strongly as he did murder and adultery. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to, to, um, to judgment. That's the action. But look at the next verse. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. That's an emotion. And Jesus is making no separation here between an action and an emotion because both of those are a sin. Verse 28, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Sin is any lack of conformity, active or passive, to the moral law of God. 
Sin is any lack of conformity, active or passive, to the moral law of God. This may be a matter of act or thought or of inner disposition or state. Sin is a failure to live up to what God expects of us in thought or in being. And so that's the first um, perspective of the nature of God. Number two, sin is rebellion and disobedience. The Bible assumes that all persons are in contact with the truth of God. Paul notes this. Paul notes that this includes even the Gentile, even those who have not received the special revelation of God, those who have not heard the law of God, the Gentiles. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For, for Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Now this passage creates a lot of debate and even frustration. This passage will get a lot of heated comments because we don't like this idea of saying people know when they're doing wrong. People are always responsible. And when Paul ends this by saying that men and women are without excuse, that goes against so much of our culture today that if I'm not personally told, well, then I'm not responsible. And yet in this passage we say, we see that Paul is saying no, What God has given in every single human being, there is this an awareness, there is an awareness of when they have done something wrong. Now, they may not know about Jesus. They may not know all the details, but there is an inward awareness in every single person that they have done something wrong. Failure to believe the message, particular when openly and specially presented, is disobedience and rebellion against God. And Adam and Eve, they rejected God's choice. They rejected this choice that God gave them to choose what was right or wrong for them. They rebelled against God's authority and thus disobeyed him. Now, I think it's important for us to just note this. I think very often when we think of disobedience, what our minds tend to do is to focus on, I shouldn't do that, and I did it. And that's usually when we think of disobedience. It's the things that we shouldn't have done, and we did them, and now we're, we were disobedient to God. But we must recognize disobedience to God is obviously those things, but then there's also this other side that says, God asked me to do something, and I didn't do it. So I am just as guilty of disobedience as I was over here. And I think both of those, both of those are disobedience to God and both of those are part of what sin is. We may look at our lives and think we're good because we haven't done any of these bad things yet. But disobedience is also not doing what God has called us to do. God has called us to walk according to his plan and according to his uh, will for our lives. And when we do not do that, we are being disobedient to God. Number three, sin entails spiritual disability. It alters our inner condition, our character. 
In sinning, we become twisted and distorted, as it were. The image of God in which we were created is disturbed. Romans chapter 1, Paul describes this process very, very clearly for us. Having refused to acknowledge God, sinners became futile in their own thinking and their senseless ways, and their minds were darkened. Romans chapter 1, verse 21, he says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So having refused to acknowledge God, thinking we were wiser than God and we don't need God, he gives them over to this way of thinking. Or as Millard Erickson would say, he gave them over to their disqualified minds. Look at verse 28 of the same chapter. It says, furthermore, just as they do not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to their deprived mind so that they would do what they ought not to be done, what ought not to be done they have become filled with every kind of wickedness evil greed and depravity they are full of envy murder strife deceit and malice they are gossips slanderers god haters insolent arrogant and boastful they even they invent ways of doing evil they disobey their parents they have no understanding no fidelity no love no mercy although they know god's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And I have to say, when you think of today's world, is that not a description of us? You've got to understand something. When left to itself, when the mind is left to itself, it is not capable, it is inadequate to properly perform and direct our conduct. The human mind in itself is not able to please God. That is why when we do not have a relationship with Jesus and when the Spirit of God is not dwelling in us, we do not have the human capacity to please God with our mind because our minds will choose to do the things that oppose the nature of God. And this is why Paul tells us in Romans 12 verse 2, so do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, there is a sin created as spiritual disability. That one time when we were in this perfect place of unity with God, sin has interrupted that. In a sense, there is a disability that every single person now has, and they are fully dependent on Jesus in order for, for the, to live the life that God has called us to live. Number four, sin is an incomplete fulfillment of God's standard. A common element running through all of the biblical characterizations of sin is the idea that the sinner has failed to fulfill God's law. There are various ways in which we fail to meet the standards of righteousness. We may simply fall short of the norm, you know, the things that, that we know we should do but we don't really do, or we fall short by, pers uh, by 
purposely disobeying God's will in in different areas and what he expects of us. Sometimes we may do the right thing, but we do it with the wrong motive. We We do the right thing, but we do it for the wrong reason. And so we're fulfilling the letter of the law, but not its spirit. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus condemns good acts done primarily out of a self, uh, out of a desire to obtain approval of others rather than to please God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, he says this For when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your heart, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. This verse has been used by lots of people to say, This is why the church should never know what you give. You know, this is why we should give and it should be completely a secret and, and no one should know how much. You give, and I think if that is all you get out of that verse, you're missing the key point of this verse. What Jesus is saying here, and he's using this one example, but what Jesus is saying here, if you do anything for your own benefit rather than to glorify God, if you do anything to glorify yourself and not glorify God, you are committing a sin. That is what Jesus is saying with this passage. And so you may give in secret and no one knows, but you're not really giving with a joyful heart. God knows the heart. God understands from where that decision and that action came. So I think every single one of us here this morning needs to be aware of this reality that we must check our own hearts as to you know, where and uh, do we do the things, from where do we do the things that we do. In our house, it wasn't uncommon for us to say to our kids, Attitude is the same as behavior. Attitude is the same as behavior. So if you go stomping up the stairs after you've been told to do something, you may as well have not done anything I told you to do. And we will discipline for attitude the same as we will for behavior. And I think sometimes God is looking at us and saying, same to you. Your attitude, the heart with which you do things, matters to God. And when our heart is not in the right place, that is a sin. Because that is what sin does. Sin wants to remove us from giving God and being fully obedient to the standard of God. And then number five. Sin is a displacement of God. What this means is that when, if we place something else, anything else in the supreme place which belongs only to God... That is a sin. Choosing any object over God is wrong, no matter how selfless such an act might seem. In other words, any time, any time that we place anything before God, that is, that is sin at work in us. Because God and God alone deserves the supreme place in our lives. This is supported by major texts in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Ten Commandments begin with the command to give God his proper place. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 says this, You shall have no other gods before me. 
This is the first prohibition in the law. This is the first time that God is saying, don't do something. And the very first thing that God says, I don't want you to do is to put anything above me. You shall have no other gods. You shall have nothing in your life that is above me. The desire, the nature of sin is to place something other than God as the primary thing. This is what got Satan in trouble to begin with, and sin will constantly strive to put something in place of God in our lives. In the New Testament, Jesus affirms that the first and greatest command is in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Proper recognition of God is primary. Ideology in, uh, in any form is the essence of sin. When we do not give God his rightful place in our lives, this is you know, ideology. And this is what happened to Satan. He refused to give God his rightful place. And then pride took hold. And when he saw himself as equal to God, he was cast out of heaven. And so that is the five, you know, perspectives of the nature of sin. And so I want to just quickly throw our confession of faith back on the screen. We're not going to go through it, but if you would look at our confession of faith, what you will see is that I have now covered the first half of that confession. So let's really quickly look at the last half. And some of you are maybe looking at your watch going, oh boy, it won't be quite as long. The last half of this, our confession of faith focuses on the consequence of sin. So I hope that this morning you recognize that there is not a person in this room who is not in some way subject to the nature of sin. You don't have to be doing certain things. You don't have to say certain things. There is even just a desire to do those things. Every single one of us in this room today is somehow subject to the nature of sin. So what is the consequence of sin? God's holy anger towards sin is revealed by the severe judgment of sin. If you wrestle with God's judgment of sin and you think that it's severe and you think that it's maybe over the top, I hope that what you see is not an angry God, but I hope that what you see is in, in a recognition of just how much God hates sin. Sin, think about it, breaks our relationship with God and exchanges true freedom for slavery. Human relationships have become battlegrounds of pride, selfishness, separation, hostility, violence, and death. That's the impact. That's the consequence of sin. Inwardly, people are damaged by feelings of shame, fear, loneliness, and harmful cravings. Work in a hostile land becomes painful and tedious. The sinner has received the guilty verdict and awaits eternal death. Without God as our refuge, we are homeless wanderers in need of grace. And still, even though all of these things have happened, all of the consequences, all the messiness and the, everything that God desired for humanity has been distorted and, and changed and distorted by sin, God unexpectedly gives mercy to the sinner. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul says, For the wages of sin is death. Now imagine if the passage ended there. 
Imagine if the consequence of sin was simply this, that all you have to focus on, all you have to focus on is death. But look at what he says, he continues, but the gift of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God did not leave us only with the consequence. God sent his son Jesus as a gift. Because here's, here's the reality, every single one of us in this room today has to wrestle to now the, with the question of what do we do with sin? What do we do with sin? We can't get away from it. We may not do certain things, but the thoughts are there. We, can't, we didn't have those thoughts, but the inclination was there. We didn't this, but we've placed something as more important than God. And every single one of in the room, in the room today has to wrestle with the question of what do we do with sin? And we recognize the consequences. We see the consequences all over this world. No one has to convince you of the consequences. You are able to see those consequences. But the thing that is often ignored is the gift of God. And we focus on, oh, this world's so bad, this world's so bad, all these horrible things, and we stop to focus on the gift of God that is for all people. And so that when we give our lives to Jesus, we have forgiveness for sin. The Bible makes no disclaimer about sins. When we read about Jesus having victory over sin, he's talking about sin, not sins, not individual sin. There's no disclaimer anywhere in the Bible that says this sin is forgiven, this sin is forgiven, that one's too big, this one is kind of covered. No, sin was defeated when Jesus rose on the cross from the, from the dead. So I trust this morning Every single one of us is going to wrestle today with what do we do with sin in our lives. Maybe you can identify with this man. He's a man who went to the pastor at the altar, and he started to pray this prayer that the pastor had heard him pray over and over and over again. And this man prayed, Lord, remove the cobwebs from my life. Remove the cobwebs from my life. And the pastor interrupted the man and he said, Lord, kill the spider. Just kill the spider. And I wonder if some of you in this place today have been praying over and over, Lord, forgive me for the sin. I did it again. I did it again. And what we need to recognize today is that we need to get rid of the temptations. We need to remove ourselves from those temptations. And we need to invite Jesus not only to come and forgive our sins, but to come and lead our lives. So if you're a Christian, I trust that today your struggle with or your wrestling with the sin is to say, have I given Jesus the rightful place in my life? Does Jesus truly have the rightful place in my life? Does he have all authority over me? Because if he does not, then there's something else, and that is a sin. That is the very nature of sin, is to replace Jesus with something else. And if you're not a Christian, I'm not here to guilt trip you. I'm not here to force you or anything like that. But I hope that as you listen today, if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you're not a Christian, I hope, if nothing else, you wrestle with the truth, and that is that you need a Savior. You need a Savior. 
You cannot save yourself. And I pray for you this morning that you would recognize your need for a Savior and that today, right now, you would cry out to God and say, I recognize the impact of sin. I recognize how sin is in every area of my life. And the only way I will have victory is to receive the victory that is already paid for me through Jesus. So we want to end by recognizing our need for Jesus. Because without him, we can't do it. Without him, there is no way other than death. Without him, there is only the wages of sin is death. But God sent his son Jesus, the gift, so that we could have eternal life through him. And if you're not at that place yet today of fully surrendering, my prayer for you is that today you would at least leave here recognizing your awareness of your need for Jesus. And if you're a Christian, and let's just say it nicely, you are just a lazy Christian. You've just become this guy, this girl that's just kind of coasting through life. I trust that today you are aware again of your absolute dependence and need for Jesus who loves you and wants to give you what you truly want and need. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that you did not leave us with only the wages of sin is death. Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for dying. And I pray that every single one of us here this morning we just have an awareness of the nature of sin. But at the same time, an awareness of our need for you and that we would turn to you and give ourselves fully to you now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.